The Torah content for this week has been sponsored by Judah and Naomi Dardik in honor of Rabbi Moskowitz's second yard site and in appreciation for all those whose love of Torah and excitement for ideas shines in their teaching. Okay, so we got a surprise Q&A. Uh, rare this year because uh, of the Friday year. So uh, Q&A away. Um, have you, do you have a methodology for learning Shir Shirem? And if so, is it similar to Mishlei where it's like Pasuk by Pasuk? Or is it more like Tehillim style where it's like chunks? Okay, so no and no. <laughs> um, so I do, I have, I tried unsuccessfully to break into Shir Shirem. I usually try every couple of years uh, and have not found a method. However, um, Rabbi Yaakov Trachman and Rabbi Zimmer developed an approach based on the Rambam uh, and they worked on it for, I think, the better part of a year. And then Rabbi Trachman gave a Sunday share on it and it was incredible. Uh, and then he started last year, he started a weekly or semi-weekly um, Shir Shirim uh, series, uh, which he has in the form of a Substack. So I would highly, it was, it was like mind-blowingly incredible. Uh, it was, um, I only listened to the first Sunday Shir and then the first of the other series. So I would highly recommend listening to that Sunday Shir. Um, and then uh, if you're interested in more, then listen to the uh, the Substack of recordings. And then the other approach is, do you know who Rabbi Maruf is? Okay, Rabbi Maruf uh, is um, uh, affiliated with our yeshiva. Um, he didn't actually learn here, but he got smicha here and he learned from my Rabbi Sachs, who's from the yeshiva. Um, and Rabbi Maruf had a series of Prashir Shirim, which is also incredible. Uh, Rabbi Trachman and Rabbi Zimmer focused on the Ravam's approach, that it was about Avas Hashem, and Rabbi Maru focused on Chazal's approach, that it was uh, it's about the relationship between Bnei Israel and Hashem. Uh, and the recordings there are available somewhere on his website, uh, which if you uh, remind me, then I'll try to track them down. Um, but it is not doable like Mishle. You can't just do Pasuk by Pasuk. And um, there are definitely are sections, but part of the difficulty is uh, figuring out like what the sections are and how they relate to one another. So I think that Rabbi Trachman in the beginning of this Sunday year, I think in the beginning, it might be later on, uh, does outline the sections. Um, and uh, so that might be helpful just in getting yourself oriented. Also getting the plot line. There is a plot, but it's like not a straightforward story. Um, so just reading the shot and familiarizing yourself with the plot is also something that I would advise. And then the third uh, approach that I'm aware of is the Rabag writes an approach to Shir Shirin uh, that is actually, do you know who Menachem Kalner is? So he's a, um, a Ram scholar um, and he's written a couple of really good English books. And there is, I think it's an out of, uh, I think it's a past publication date um, thing of, which is a translation of the Rabag on Shir Shirin, which you need a translation for because it's very Aristotelian very in need of footnotes and also um, uh, like a lot of epistemology. And Rabag holds, he's in the Ramam camp. So he holds that it's about Avas Hashem, but Rabag holds that Shir Shirin is like a, a guide to perfecting your mind to be able to engage in the study of science and metaphysics. And he has an amazing Hakdama where he takes every element of Shir Shirin and then says, you know, Plants are muscle for this, and daughters of Jerusalem are muscle for this. You know, beloved is muscle for this, and he he like gives you all the keys. So just reading the Hakdama is worth it. And then he has a, a running commentary throughout the entire thing. So that's a really uh, an, an amazing thing. But again, it's very different than what you're going to get uh, in other places because it's very allegorical and it's unclear whether I think he thinks. I mean, he definitely thinks that he's actually like 
learning what Shalom HaMelech intended. Uh, I don't know if we would say that because I think so much is dependent on Aristotelian stuff. Um, but yeah, so I guess I don't have a derech, but those are my drachim that I have like made recourse to. Yeah, uh, I've tried and it's just very, very hard. I think the other, the next time I try, I'm going to try with Sforno because of my uh, my falling in love with Sforno over the last couple of years. And he has a Shir Shirim commentary. And with, I think, let me check on all the Torah. Um, I believe if it is there, and if, oops, sorry. And if uh, by Moshe Kravitz, who's been my Sforno uh, savior. <laughs> um, uh, oh, let's see here. Sforno, if he has his footnotes. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so he has his extensive, extensive footnotes, which will elucidate everything. And Sforno is amazing. And let's see if there's an Elliot Danola as well. No, there's not. Okay, but still, we got Sforno though. Yeah, so um, yeah, amazing. Okay, so that's what I'm looking forward to. So that will be my fourth era. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, okay, I have a question. Uh, yeah. Can do you know anything about? Oh. Um, yeah. About uh, Yitzchak not being able to, you know, recognize Ra. Uh, you know, I've heard. Um, I've heard things about that, that people have a drusha on Yitzchak was blind, right? Well, Yitzchak was definitely blind, but that I think there are, are approaches who say that that also alludes to the fact that he had a certain blindness to Aesop's wickedness or to like Yaakov's, um, you know, uh, superiority, but I don't know sources offhand, but okay. that's where I would look if I, if well, I, uh, I've been looking, I've, I've been, I've have you looked on that puzzle? Well, I, I listened to Rabbi Shira yesterday, and he does use that Rashi, okay. and and you know the main question is like, you know, um, you know, clearly Rukhnoshi has a new law. yeah, um, but still, you know, Yitzchak, uh, yeah, Yitzchak, um, I mean, I mean, how I guess the question is how can he be cl- clueless? I'll just say how can he be so clueless and not recognize it? So, right, because he was clearly a Russia. I mean, Rivka knew that. Yeah. You know, and I, I think at a certain point, you don't need the Navoa to sh- see that he's how much of a Russia is. Okay. So, so just, just to, to uh, just to, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, provide another perspective. Sure. Um, sure. So the, the shear that I gave, um, uh, uh, all villainize. Let's see if that comes up. Yeah. Um, so the shir I gave, Sunday shir I gave of called why midrashic embellishment. Why did Chazal villainize the bad guys and vindicate the good guys? So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Us. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you're right. I, I did test that on you. Yeah, yeah right. So, um, so that would argue that you know there are there's Chazal's approach to Esav, uh, in which he was in case he was like out there in the field murdering people and raping people, you know, um, and then there's the revision of Esav you would get from the psukim, yeah. which is that he is not evil. He's just not like right, the right, one who right. is deserving of the, of the Bahura. So I would say that that to me lessens the question. Right, right. Still the question, you know, there's a bunch of issues about why didn't Yitzchak know, have an accurate knowledge of the difference? Why didn't Rivka communicate this to him? So I would say that, that mitigates the question a little bit, but I would also say that if you're already in Midrash world, I am in Midrash. right. So <laughs> I think the other place to look is um, Pachad Yitzchak. Not necessarily that pasuk, but there is this idea that Yitzchak was. I don't want to say. Um, I don't want to use the term PTSD because that would imply like a psychological disorder. But that there was a like excess impact 
of Midas Hadin awareness on him from undergoing that experience. And if you're in Midrash world also, then like, you know, well, you have to reckon with like how old was he when this happened? But, you know, and there's this whole idea of he's an Ola Tamima, you know, there are Chazals that try to explain how he was in some ways more pristine or more removed from the world than other people. And that might account for a blindness that wouldn't come from, it wouldn't come from a like Stam imperfection. It would come from the same way as like, uh, have you heard Rob Bog's explanation for Moshe Rubino's um, speech impediment? No, I think you said it once. Yeah, I think I I probably said it once also that basically he, you know, he doesn't hold it as a physical thing. He holds that like, because Moshe Rubino was so in the world of abstract metaphysics, he couldn't relate to the concepts of like Tov and Ra that the mundane average person used. So like having a conversation with him would be like, you know, cause a, a Navi has to, like the Ram uh, says about the Navi in, um, I, will, I would love to see that Ram. Uh, if you have the time to share. With yeah, sure. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, the uh, Ramam says in the requirements for Navua in Hilkazi Sodea Torah. Um Chapter seven, um, that, um, so after he goes through the, through the main requirements, he also says, Daito Tamid Panuya Lamala, his mind, the Navi's mind has to be constantly like freed upwards, Kshura Tahasa Kise, tied under the Kise Akavod, whatever that means, Lahavin Baosan Atsuros Akadoshos Atoros. So, there has to be like this strong investment of energy and connection to Chachmas Hashem in order to get Nevoa. And Moshe had to be in that state all the time. So, so you ask him a question of like something about something mundane. He's not capable of breaking out of that and talking to the average person. And that's why they say that Aaron was mourned by the people more than Moshe Rabbeinu was because Aaron could relate to people and Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't relate right, to people. Right. So I guess, I guess this, no, because no, Rebbe, I think Rebbe's, Along the lines of yeah. Rabag, it's interesting. I didn't know there was Rabag. Like, well, against Rabag on Moshe. Not, I know. Yeah, yeah, I right. think he is still killed because I think the way he was putting it is like through the events of the Akeda, he was he was totally removed from the, the Goshness and totally in the yeah, right. And, and somehow, and like here's the dangerous part. I don't know if you can say he couldn't understand. Ra, I don't think I don't. Think no, no, no. So you can't be a tzaddik if you don't understand Ra. Yeah, right. so he, I think he was able to comprehend the Ra, but I think he, you know, I think maybe using the robot, like he couldn't, you know, uh, interact with individuals uh-huh. who were Ra uh-huh. somehow. That, that's you know. totally possible. Um, let me just see if I can find the robot really quickly if it's on the first time that that phrase uh, is stated, and if not, then uh, I'll try to send it to you later. Um, no see you know it might be here or no i thought it was here but it might also be on the masve on the mask i don't know i'll have to like look into it but uh yeah all right so this was uh sorry, type this i'm look i'm being good i'm remembering to do this i don't have to ask everyone afterwards find this yeah Ezra? Um, new question. yeah so what would you say is the best way to go about teaching somebody who is unfamiliar with like art or direct thinking <laughs> yeah uh so now are you asking in i i'd say like you have to distinguish between halacha and non-halacha um even though it's the same derech but i think the way you go about it is very different well i guess my question was more about hashkafa but yeah i'm interested in both okay I could change my question. yeah no 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 so i think a halacha is the simpler one in halacha i would say the best success I've ever had is um, 
so there's two types of people <laughs> who don't know Ardera. They're the people who have no exposure to the Briscadera, and then they're the people who have the exposure to the Briscadera, and they think that it's all just after Gavra, and they don't really know what, what we do, you know? So I, um, I think you could use a similar approach on both, but what I would do is I would take, for a person who's totally not exposed to the Briscadera, I'd say, you know, giving them examples of, um, of you know, Ahavamina Mascana or Mafalokas that either they are already familiar with and then you can light it up with real svara or something where the facts are easy to grasp and you can just show them like the wonder of having a good svara like i, I haven't given this over in a very long time but i remember the one i used to use was um was from repesa and it was on Kisui Hadan, and I, I I could be getting the facts wrong. So if you think I'm getting wrong, then please correct me. That um that you know Kisui Hadan, you cover the blood with with uh, with Afar, right? And there is a uh, halacha that if you take a kli and you grind it up into dust and you cover the the um the the dam, then it, you're not yotze. But if the kli was made of gold. And you grind it into dust, then you are yotze, okay. And uh, and so the question is, bimanavshach, like you know, what should matter? And I I don't I I think I used to present it with the actual like facts, and maybe there's a machlokus bishonim or something like that, or having this kind of. But I remember it turned out that like like th- that the question was uh, I I don't even remember what hakira was, but it's something to the effect of like, is afar a like um, a uh, like a, 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 a material state, or is it like a, a a form of an entity or something? Like that. I, forgot, I, forgot what, I forgot exactly what it was, but like the the point was that gold dust is an entity. Like you can buy and sell gold dust. Gold dust is a, a something of value. Whereas if you take a TV and you crush it in a metal crusher, you just change the material form. Of the, but it's not even you haven't transformed it into another product. You know, whereas like uh, the gold dust you have and. I remember for me, somehow that was like a, a big like aha moment, or I, there's another one that I think people, you got to ask Rabbi Zimmer about this, but some clickier that people make in tennis, yeah, where like it lands on the line. And I know certain people like using it. Do you know what it is enough to say it? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I think basically the question is, there's what tennis, which is one versus one and yeah. two versus two. So there's in tennis, there's like the regular box and there's like an outer box. Okay. So, so the question is, if it lay on one, one versus one, I think, if it lands on the line between yeah. the regular box and the outer box, then it's out. But in, oh, what? It's in if it's on the line. Oh, it's in. But yeah. It, but if it's two versus two and it lands on the line, then it's out. Uh huh. Interesting. Okay. So the question is, what's the line? Is it uh-huh. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So so you could use, so especially for people who are like threatened by halacha or scarred by Gemara, then like if you use something like that, then that's good. Or the other example I would use there, I used to use the example, I think I might have written this actually in my uh, How to Review Shear Guide. Um, the hoodie example, uh, is this ringing a bell? So when I was in the dorm, okay, Rabbi Zimmer was in the dorm and I remember we had a dorm meeting and he was wearing a hoodie and this was back. I don't know what the rule is now, but like you couldn't wear hoodies, you know, you had to wear a shirt with a collar. Right. And I remember he got, you know, rebuked by the dorm counselor who said, uh, you know, you can't wear a hoodie in the base midrash. And Rabbi Zimmer said, well, it depends on how you define collar. If collar is uh, is a uh, is just an extension of the shirt, 
you know, so then one thing, and then if, if, if a collar is a particular tsura of like a, of a, of a garment, you know, of a garment component, then, uh, then hoodie is, uh, you know, is not a collar, you know? And so here's, so, so, so examples like that, I think can get people into the world of like what definition is. And if they are familiar with brisker derech, so what you have to do is take, uh, is you have to like level it up. Like, I'm going to go ahead and pause this for, uh, in Hashkafa, I think that's actually easier. Um, I mean, first of all, you have to define YBD is Dara. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, it depends on, depends on like what you want to show them. But like, um, you know, I think that showing them a Machlokas uh, Rishonim where, again, where people stop prematurely uh, and then you show them, first of all, a real Svara and then what the practical applications to the Dara Chachayim are. To me, those are the two hallmarks of YBT learning in Hashkafa, which is in terms of methodology, which is like, like actual clarity and definition, and then extending this to a Dara Chachayim as opposed to just keeping in the theoretical realm. So for example, now this is a like Davka low level example, because this was what I used to do in Shalhevet for the model lesson for open house is I would do the, um, the Khatas of the Nazir, right? So, so it's a classic question of why does the Khatas bring the Nazir? Why does the Khatas bring the Nazir? Why does the Nazir bring the Khatas? Are you bringing the Korban or is the Korban bringing you? You know, I feel like that's a, a thing someone would say. Yeah. Um, not an Ardera. Um, but, uh, um, so the, the Nazir brings a Khatas at the end of his Naziris. And the question is why, right? So, so the Rambam holds that, um, that the that he's bringing his chatas for abstaining from wine, okay? Uh, because wine, he says, is a uh, you know is a pleasure, and it's something that God created, and there's nothing bad about it, and it's used for good. And uh, you know, Yain Lavav Enosh, and you've got all these mitzvahs with wine. So if the Nazir is abstaining from wine, then that's uh, it partakes of hate. You know, it's not an actual like Maisei Avera, obviously, but it partakes of hate, and he has to acknowledge that. Um, and, uh, and that this type of abstention from pleasure and asceticism is, is like connected the Torah in a certain sense. Ramban says the opposite, which is that he really should have remained a Nazir forever. So when he returns to the worldly pleasures, then he brings a chattas for that. Okay. So that if someone just read the Rambam and read the Ramban, that's what they would walk away with. And then they would move on, you know, but we would not be satisfied with that. You know, we would want to, to define things. Now, again, this was me talking to eighth graders. Okay. And I'm sure you could like take this much deeper, but I said that the question, and also it seems to be a huge mach locus where is wine good or is it bad? Like is abstaining from worldly pleasure good or is it bad? And you could say that they have this huge mach locus if you want to, but we generally try to minimize mach locus and, and, and to find it about like a localized issue. So the way I explained it to these eighth graders was I said, it's really a question of not what is good and what is bad, but what is Naziros, right? So Ramam's model of Naziros and Hilkos Deos is when you have an addiction to pleasure and you need to use Naziros as a rehabilitative, uh, rehabilitative program, you know? So like any re rehab program, you have to abstain from the thing you're addicted to until you can control it. And in abstract, while you're abstaining from a good that God created, then that's bad. But but the program is designed to rehabilitate you, and then to, you get off of the program. But according to the Ramban, I I, I said it's not like I, I don't think I used the word rehab with eighth graders, but it's not like rehab. It's like training for a marathon where you're trying to like boost yourself to a new level. And if you're training for a marathon, you eat healthy, you get in shape, you like are regimented in all of your behavior, and you attain this level of peak physical 
uh, prowess. And if you can't, ideally, you should maintain your health after the marathon. And if you then go back to your old, like, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, potato chip eating ways. So then that's a step down. So depending on how you conceive of what Nazirus is, you'll define Khatas vis-a-vis that. So I think showing someone, so I, I got, you know, I did this, I think must've given this year somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 or 70 times. Uh, Cause I would do this like five or six times every year, you know, and consistently I got people coming over and saying, I've never heard so much like that before, you know? And I think people are just, and again, I didn't talk it out, but you can see how this applies to Derek Chaim, you know? So I think just those two flashes of like, Oh, we're going beyond the facts and defining things. And we're seeing how this applies to Derek Chaim. I think is like what makes people like see that, Oh, there's something different going on here. Yeah. Uh, totally different. Okay, so any other follow-ups on this? Yeah, yeah. Let's go as a first, because yeah. Yeah. So, what would you say about somebody who like, let's let's say more like in philosophical areas, they're like more rational thinkers, right? Thinking of like that. How would you like introduce them to more rational like, thinking about God? Yeah, I think possible? I think finding examples that are not too threatening, you know, that like resonate with them, um, and if you can ground it in sources like that they respect, as opposed to just your own mind. Uh, then I think that that's, that's the key, you know? So, um, so for example, like, let's say someone, um, you know, thinks that, uh, tefillah of a Sadiq Ben Sadiq or a Russia Ben Sadiq is, uh, you know, it's just a matter of like hereditary, you know, and like you show them like, like a, an idea from a source, you know, that, that you can actually point to and, and, and they can see how, like, cause what it tends to be, and this is kind of the point I was making in that, in that, uh, in the, the, in my discussion group, like there's two problems with magical thinking. One is intrinsic as <laughs> that is false, but the second is it doesn't actually tend to lead to perfecting yourself, you know, to like actual, actual benefit, you know? So I think if you can show someone, you know, like that there is a way to learn this, that actually like is going to improve you in your mind and in your mitos or in society then they see the value in it. Like the point is that you have to like show them the value of this. Um, and again, people who are into magical thinking tend to um, assume that just like that is the default mainstream. And the more you can show them from Chazal that, that, you know, this approach is advocated then, then, then the better. So like, um, I don't know if I have go-to examples with this right now, but um, that's what I would, uh, that's what I would try to do. You know, say like, like for example, your, your dad has given actually a lot, your dad, Reviton, people in yeshiva have given shiram on ayin hara right so like that's a classic example of people have like a magical view of it but if you actually like go through the way because i'll talk about it there are profound ideas in psychology there and uh i think like finding stuff like that and also not trying to force it on them not trying to say that oh your way of thinking is wrong but just showing there is this other way of looking at things with an ayin tova you know that uh, that like uh you know that that is a value and has a basis in the masora yeah you had to follow yeah um well there's a question i guess yeah. about like i'm um, approaching people who aren't exposed to in-depth learning at all like, yeah like say like high schoolers yeah who i'm not gonna say anything about jewish day schools but they probably they just don't have so much exposure to like even learning at all yeah how do you get them engaged in wanting to learn so I, I, okay, I'm saying this based on my experience. Okay, is that I am a firm believer in the um, in the intrinsic desire for chachma that the Talmud Lakim has, you know, and that that kids are born naturally curious. All men by nature desire to know. Blah blah blah, all that good stuff. Uh, and I think the problem is that they get it beaten out of them, or they get it boarded out of them, you know, by uh, by 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 schooling, right? So by the time they get to high school, they're they 
than like, you know, for many kids, it's just beneath the surface. So the, the whole paradigm is you have to tap into that. Okay. Now there are kids who are high achievers who will have incentives based on grades, based on attention from the teacher, based on wanting to like look smart or whatever. Those are the easy kids, right? That you just get them into thinking, you get them to like come up with questions and stuff. And, uh, you know, and like, I think they'll, they'll be like more task oriented and success oriented and that's easy. Fine. Then you have the kids who are rebellious and anti those kids are also easy because all you have to do is push their buttons, you know, or harness their buttons, you know, like you either say stuff to get them angry, uh, you know, or like, like, like riled up, you know, or you shock them into, um, like, you know, realize like, Oh, this, this guy who's teaching me like things like I do, like, you know, sort of a thing of like, like the, um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, I, I, I know I didn't come up with this line. I, sorry, I know other people have this line, but I came up with it originally for myself. And then I found other people saying it, which was in my first year of teaching, then like there was this kid who ended up being like a Talmud Muvahak of mine, but he like was very anti-religious based on like bad religious experience. And uh, I remember he was shocked by me saying that the God that he doesn't believe in, I don't believe in either. And that kind of like had like a, an in, you know, and there are other ways to do this as well of like getting people to realize there's, you know, YBT used to be big into this and it had its perks and, and its detriments, which is like a certain countercultural um, ex- uh, approach, you know, in Hashkafa, in Halakha and stuff like that. So there's costs, but like, if you can tap into that and and get them to realize like, oh, this person is, uh, is, you know, is, is coming from a different approach that could open their mind. Um, there's also the, everything that I was saying to Ezra, I think people naturally are attracted to things with values. This is why like Mishlei is so, so successful because I don't care if you are, you know, a bad student academically or you're anti-religious. If I give you an idea about like how to, you know, like avoid consequences or like, you know, how to, to be successful in some area, you're going to use it. And because you're using Chachma, it'll enhance your, uh, your, 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 your life. The hard kids are the kids who are so traumatized by Jewish education and so jaded that they are tuned out, you know? So those are the kids that I feel like you need to see what is the inroad, you know, and, you know, find everyone has some, because Torah relates to everything, there are some ways to get there for for everything. So again, it could be, it could be the button pushing technique. It could just be finding an interest of theirs and then harnessing it, you know? So like, uh, an old example and a recent example um, that I remember I had a kid in my second year of teaching in Hafter who was very, I wouldn't say turned off in the positive sense, just apathetic to all things Judaism, you know? Um, and he really was a, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the proper term is, Nipponophile, Japanophile, like he just loved everything Japanese and like he loved anime and he like was teaching himself Japanese and stuff like that. And I got permission from the principal to do a one-on-one learning session with him. So what I did was I took uh, and Mishle, and I ran it through Google translate and translated into Japanese and had the kid, I said like, you know, can you translate this? And he was like, translate and like going through like all the, like the nuances and ambiguity about like this. And I, you know, I said that this is like, I just said, this is a proverb, you know, <laughs> and he translated it. And then once he had the, the translation, I started asking what it meant, you know, and then like, uh, then it ended up being, you know, good, good ideas. And I said, by the way, this is a puzzle in Michelet. And we got in through that, you know, or another, uh, another uh, case I had, uh, I used to be hired to like teach, um, uh, you know, 
Apicor's kids from a certain local high school. Um, and so the technique I would start off with is, um, is I would say, imagine you're writing. So, you know, there's always like a certain, like, um, you know, hesitance of like their parent hired a rabbi to like teach them. So like what's going to, you know, so I would say, okay, there's a game that I, I play sometimes usually when I'm trying to fall asleep of imagine you're writing a book and the book says things I know for sure. Okay. And you can only write stuff in that book. Uh, then what would you write and what order would you write it in? You know, and this tends, to, I, I, I wouldn't like, Davka engineer the discussion, but I could usually guide it in a way where we would end up defining what truth is, what reality is, what good and bad are, and what ideas are. And like, it would be so fundamental and basic and that they would just be like, kind of like dazzled with like, I've never learned Torah this way before, you know? And like, like, so, so those are the two approaches. One is approaching it like from the, uh, I don't know which one's bottom up and top down, but like through their unique interests, the other is like approaching it from such broad, like universal categories that you're tapping into like some universal thing, you know? Um, so those are like some strategies. I mean, you, I can talk about this for hours because it's like, this is what I do, do for a living, but uh, yeah, but uh, we can talk about it later. Uh, I, I think we're eating yeah. dinner at the Zimmer, so we can talk about it there. Yeah. Okay, totally, different. totally different question. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you saw it. There's been a picture going around of some Israeli soldiers yeah. who are leaning from the Torah and it's Apparently they don't have a yard, so they're using a, a knife. <laughs> knife, yeah, I saw that. Saw that. Yeah, yeah. Do awesome. you see the discourse surrounding it? No, but I, I imagined what it was. I imagined that some people are like, oh, this is awesome. And some people are like, you see, Israelis are barbarians well, <laughs> or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. more sophisticated. We're, okay. we're saying like, um, you know, quoting the uh, Midrash Zal, somewhere that like, um, you know, you can't, the reason why you can't use. Uh, oh, not cutting movements for the base make dash, yeah. That shortens life and alter life. Oh, life. interesting. So, use that to say maybe you shouldn't use a knife for a Torah. And other yeah. people are saying, well, you know, Torah has a more nuanced attitude towards killing, right? Like Amalek <laughs> and, and whatever. So, I'm just wondering, what, what where, where would you <laughs> right? I mean, mm, I mean, the first place you have to look is halakha. Um, I don't even Literally know. I don't think it's more, it's more like okay, no, 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 lines. but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for, uh, for a specific reason, okay. which is, do we have a copy of the Rub Speaks here? Okay, fine. All right, so I'll assume from the shrug now. <laughs> the, the, uh, I, I don't have a copy of this quote here, but the Rub in, you know, the book The Rub Speaks, where David Holzer. Okay, so you should know about this book. Um, the Rabbi David Holzer was the Rub's sh uh, chauffeur for a period of time, and he asked permission to record the conversations. And then he published them in a book. So it's like, it's a double-edged sword because it's the Rav being candid, you know, and saying stuff that he wouldn't necessarily publish or teach publicly. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, but it's also more authentic. So take this with a grain of salt or whatever. The Rav said, because we don't have a derech in Agadata, in like learning Agada and non-halakhic topics, um, I mean, we have a derech, but no. <laughs> um, no, he's saying like, there's no like, uh, uh, you know, there's no like set Derek or whatever. So he said, you know, it's always somewhat speculative, but if you can show that Halacha recognizes the distinction, then you have a basis for a Godot. And if you notice the rough style of Drush, uh, he almost, or he, he very frequently grounds his Agadic statements and his Hashkafa stuff in Halachic distinctions. So I would say like, I don't know when the concept of a Yad first came about, but I would look in, to the halachos, I would look into Kavod HaTorah stuff and see if 
if this type of question is dealt with in any other form in the halakha specifically of Kavod HaTorah, you know, um, and I, I like use that as a basis. And then the other thing also, because we're in the realm of Kavod HaTorah, you know, Kavod in general is very um, um, perception based, you know. So, for example, um, I, I have never seen this inside, but what I've been told is, you know, we our minhag here, or our, our, our shita, I guess, is that we hold that you can put a safer on the ground, right? And the reason why I've been told is it's machlokas achronim about whether the cover of a safer is considered part of the safer. That everyone holds you shouldn't put a safer on the ground, but if the cover is a separate entity, so then you're not actually putting that on the ground, right? Uh, whereas if it was, let's say, a coverless safer, um, like all my copies of the Mishnah Torah that I've loved the cover off, um, then, uh, then you shouldn't put that on the ground, you know? So... Nevertheless, even though there's a halakha distinction, I would not be caught putting a safer on the ground in an area where people are going to view that as disrespectful, you know, because kavod is dependent on public perception. If everyone thinks that you're being disrespectful, then you are being disrespectful, you know, um, unless it's an area where like, you know, a vodazar is involved, whatever, you know. So I would say that like, you know, I don't know how you can like take a survey about this, but I would say that like if a certain if this is just like someone's neurotic thing, like they're so like anti-violence that like they they're uh, they're like the uh, you know the Trump election meme of the woman saying no, you know, like with the um, traumatized by like seeing a, a knife on a safer Torah. So then, like you don't have to worry about that person. But if there is this perception that like this is disrespectful or advocating like violence in Torah, then just don't do it. Like that's the other thing. Also, is like like you know what are you losing? You have to ask, what are you gaining? What are you losing? You know, I don't know this situation, but I feel like most people could point with their finger and I'm not judging the guys who did this. Cause like they're in wartime, but I'm saying like, if you have a choice, whether to like do this and risk upsetting people, you know, it just might not be worth it. Um, and so like, you know, that's what I, that's my, what, what I, what I would say. This. Level, what, what do you think though? Uh, like the argument that people say, like I said, um, you know, we're building up that you can't cut the altar with a sword because swords shorten lives. Right. So you know what I'd say? People use that. Right. I'd say there's a lot of knives going on in the base mikdash because we cut animals' <laughs> necks. Right. Okay. So like, the, 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 this is also why like you need to see if it's grounded in halacha. Like, right. like this person is basically taking their agenda and then just projecting it onto the entire thing indiscriminately. And like, if you look at at you know at halacha, halacha is more nuanced. And if you look at hashkafa, it's more nuanced. So um. Yeah, so I think that that, that has to be uh, taken into account there also. I have, Ariel went away. Um, I have a thing that I was actually going to post on the chat, which was a public rebuke, but I wanted to get his permission because I know he loves public rebuke. Um, and uh, and this is uh, also something that I want to say in general, but I'll, I'll wait till he comes back. Yeah, Isaac, it just reminded me of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is not necessarily well formulated. Yeah. Um, so I think I typically feel like there is one right thing that I should be doing with my time. Right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on how accurate or inaccurate that is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, let's say, like, like, what's it like this morning? I, I, you know, I could have come or come to, you know, come to QA yeah. or not. Yeah. Um, I feel like this is a little bit more of a clear case, but yeah, part of let's say like in the evening and where I couldn't be doing one of any number of things if I don't have anything specific, yeah, like structured, and then and then 
I feel like I have to be like figuring out what the right thing to be doing is, you know. Um, so um, I guess I wanted to hear right. your thoughts about that. Yeah. I feel like I should have thoughts about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, I th- okay. I'll tell you what first comes to mind is that um, that I think because you're a gamer, then there is this notion of what's the play here, and usually in I, I guess there's different kinds of games, but in most games, there is usually like a best decision, like what is the play? You know, um, sometimes there are like multiple radical strategies you can take, but like in any given scenario, there's usually like, well, what's the correct play here, you know? And I feel like the first step is to identify that that's not how making decisions in life works, that there are many, many uh, um, uh, routes and uses of time, and each of them have advantages and disadvantages, and each of them have benefits and detriments, and each of them set you up for something different, you know? And like, I think that, I don't know if it's coming from a fantasy of like winning or if it's coming from a fantasy of like some sort of like binary absolutism, you know, some other like thing. But I'd say like the first step is to recognize that that model is wrong and that like, you know, that, and, and it's, it's the part in, uh, in, in 4,000 weeks of like, you do have limited time in life and you have to choose things and give up things that are worthwhile. You know, those are my initial thoughts. Uh, yeah. David. Sorry, not really, but... Oh, yeah, Isaac. So, yeah, my first thought about that is that I'm not convinced that that model is wrong. Okay. Because, like, let's say there, there are things that are more worthwhile and things that are less. Worthwhile. I'm not challenging that. Yeah. So, I'm saying that there are multiple things that are worthwhile in different ways. Yeah. Right. So, so I feel, I think the thing that's hard for me is that given that some things are more worthwhile than they are less worthwhile, yeah. Um, that I feel like if I knew, all of the factors of everything. <laughs> yeah. Then I could, if you were God, just say if you were yeah, God. Yes. Yeah. 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 If, I, if I if I had let's say God's omniscience, yeah. you know, um, I would know. This See, it's guy. funny. You're trying to mitigate the God fantasy in you. You don't want even want to say if I were God. Yeah. Right. It's a very powerful thing that you don't want to acknowledge the fact that you that you believe you're God. You know. So yeah. if I were God. If I were God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd be able to. Look at the decision yeah. that I have and see this has these upsides and downsides. This has these other upsides and downsides, but this one the 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 magnitude of the upsides and the the uh, and the, you know the the the, like the the balance of the upside and downside. This one has the, the best um, the best like the best most upside and least downside. Yeah, um, and. I feel like I feel like that is a reality of the different choices. That there is one that has the most, and then okay, I I, yeah. I still think you're uh, that that's not correct. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'll, I'll yeah yeah sure. So so um, first of all, I just want to make an observation here: is that even if sorry, even if the there is a correct play, the way you're talking about it now does indicate to me, and I'm not saying this as a diagnosis of your personality because I don't know how much you're played by this. I'm speaking as a perfectionist, which is a imperfection, which I got to get rid of <laughs> um, that, uh, that like, if I were seeing your words, I know that in me, it would be coming from a perfectionism. And so in other words, there could be such a thing as the correct play, but my relationship to finding it is coming from perfectionism, which is going to like limit me and blind me, you know? So that's one thing, but I'll say another thing also is I think this is a fundamentally different question of whether you're d- choosing to, let's say, 
go to a Q&A or watch an episode of a TV show versus going to a Q&A or like learning this or doing this mitzvah? I think those are two separate questions. Okay. The second one I think is easier. Okay. Of like, if you're choosing between multiple things to learn and multiple things to do that are actually worthwhile. Um, so I would say, it's all good, man. Okay. <laughs> um, meaning that ultimately, you know, we do have to diversify when it comes to perfecting ourselves and like all paths lead, all paths within Torah lead to good. So let's take this morning for an example, right? Is um, you can ask people who are, were in my year last night. I was like nearly dead last night. Okay. I was like crawling to the finish line to try to give this year. And I had to stop and like, like it was, I've had a really, really rough week. And, uh, and then I found out that, that Rabbi Markowitz is in here this morning and I haven't written my article yet. <laughs> um, so, so I was thinking about, and I had made this whole plan of canceling my Friday morning here. So I'd have, I'd have extra time and my Harusa canceled. So I had more extra time, you know? So I had this choice of, am I going to use this extra time now to write my article <laughs> um, uh, and get it out in, on time? Or am I going to do Q&A? And two things ultimately decided my, uh, made my decision. One is that, uh, actually three things. One is selfishly, I think I will enjoy Q&A more. So I'm giving to the procrastination <laughs> to like enjoy Q&A. Two is that either investment of time is going to lead to insights and like, and, and to like leading to good, like, like the process of writing is going to lead me to many, many like insights and stuff like that. And the process of these Q&A questions is going to lead me to insights. So it's all going to be good. It's not like, like, even if there is a best, it's all investing in myself in terms of, 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 of like, like my good path. And then the third thing, like down on the list is, is this benefits more, actually, no, <laughs> this benefits more people uh, like in a different way. And like, that's good for other people, but you should, you know, worry about yourself. So like, I, I think even if there's a better play, if you're dealing with, with like, you know, watching TV or learning, I think you can make a good argument for learning unless like you really need to watch TV. But I think if you're, if you're, if your question is like things that are like good use of your time in general. Yeah. I, yeah. The thing that's hardest for me is when the things are like each is valuable in their own way, but in different ways. Yeah. Right. Like let's say like sometimes it makes sense for me to let's say when, when I have a, a choice between let's say spending time with the Vivo. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, like I can't make the decision to always be learning because that's going to be detrimental now. Right. You know, um, but then every instance of that choice is a is a like a hard. Okay, so then, so so then another uh, category of strategies I'd recommend to you is um, is set it and forget it. Right, like like come up with a system for how to make these decisions. So you don't have to make a completely new decision each time, you know, uh, like whether that means like working out a, uh, uh, a, you know, a ratio type thing, you know, or, or working out a communication system where like you can easily like discuss this with, with Aviva and like, like know where to make a decision because it, it, it just, it's what you're doing also is, uh, is it's a waste of energy or a spinning of tires or like a, a bringing up of stress. Like, like if you have to make the decision each time. And again, for me, like my version of this question was in uh, deciding what to give shear on, you know, when I, when I give regular shear and I, my first year teaching here, I would decide a new topic for certain shear every week. 
And it would be agonizing to like have to like decide what to prepare. And then finally I decided, okay, like I'm gonna do a Pirkei Abushir and just not decide what to teach. I'll just keep going through the Mishnayos, you know? And like that just offloaded the decision. Or let's say like you have a thing where you find yourself sometimes having 10 extra minutes. Instead of starting the decision, well, what do I do during these 10 extra minutes? Have a go-to thing that you do, you know? Whatever, whether it's like a, a safer or like, you know, a sub stack, you know? So yeah, offload the decision to a system, you know? Okay. All right. Let's go to a new question now. Yeah, Devin. Oh, so I should say. Hold on a second. Um, do we? We can stop after this, or we go to nine thirty. All right, whatever. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that works out then. Uh, where is the pause recording? Okay. So without without uh saying the question that was not um recorded, uh, I'm just going to read this halacha here, um, which is, I mean, again, the first question always has to be, did I do something wrong? Right. Um, So the thing that came to my mind, I'm not saying for sure that you did something wrong, but there is a halacha that what you did is usher. (laughs) Okay. Um, Anyone know the answer? That might possibly come up. What was that? That's after the fact. I'm saying you did something that that might be usher. I I, I don't know because I don't know the circumstances. Uh, Is avak lashon hara. Okay. So the dust of lashon hara. So there's four categories of the dust of Lashon Hara, but the one I'm thinking of, Yesham Devarim Shein Avak Lashon Hara. So there are things that are Avak Lashon Hara. Ketad, how so? So the first case you didn't do, which is like saying, oh, who knew that so-and-so was going to turn out so so like such a mensch? And like alluding to the fact that like they were bad before. Okay. Oshiyomar, Shashmi Plani, Eni Rote Lahodia Ma'ira Ma'haya. Uh, I, I I can't talk about so and so. I can't tell you what happened. You know, like you're alluding to like bad stuff. Killed by me. That's one. Second is this is the one. Hamasaper betovas chavero bifnei sonav. Someone who speaks says good things um, about his fellow in front of people who hate his fellow. This will cause him to speak uh, degradingly about this person. This is what Shlomo Melech said in Mishle, one who blesses his fellow in a loud voice in the morning, early in the morning, it will be considered a curse for him. Because from his good, he'll come out to his bad. So what I'm saying here, and I'm going to now stop recording. Um, okay, so this is uh, regarding two off-the-record questions, the previous one and then a new one. Um, uh, this is... As far as I can tell, this is my interpretation. Uh, I don't think anyone uh, says this, although I got inspired by the Matutus David, even though he didn't say this directly. Um, in Kohelis chapter one, um, there are four psukim uh, after the thesis. So a generation comes and a generation goes, um, uh, but the earth remains forever. Uh, the sun rises and the sun sets, and to its place, it, it yearns to go to shine there again. Um, the wind goes to the south, and then it turns back to the north. Round and round the wind goes, and on its round the wind goes. The wind returns. And then All rivers flow into the sea, and the sea is never filled. To the place where the rivers flow, there they return to flow. Okay, so um, so my thesis of Kohalas, in a nutshell, is it's about pursuing what I call Yisron, which is um, more. That's what it literally means. Okay, um, of like trying to get more than what reality actually has to offer. And there are, and the book is about examining different 
pursuits of different types of yisron that people chase, whether it's wealth, fame, love, mitzvot, you know, things that people chase and can't attain. Okay. And what I hold are, you know, Ibn Ezra points out that these are the four elements, uh, earth, oops, uh, it goes earth, fire, wind, and water. Um, but what I hold, oh, and, and so he says that it's part of the physical world. That's why it's the four elements. I hold that these are four, like these are metaphorical or allegorical um, depictions of four reasons why your quest for this unattainable goal is destined to actually fail. Okay. First reason is death. You're going to die. So whatever thing you're pursuing, then you're going to end up dying and uh, you're not going to be able to like get the full amount of that, or you could die at any moment. Okay. Second one is, is, is obviously they thought that the sun or, okay, whatever they thought or didn't think experientially, we treat the sun as the sun moving as opposed to us. Right. So if you imagine it, the sun wants to illuminate. So what happens is it goes and it's like illuminate, illuminate, and then it gets like, like forced to like set. And then it just wants to get back there and, and uh, 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 shine again. So that represents um, things that you are. Um, oh, things that are intrinsically impossible to attain. Okay. That the sun cannot shine in all areas at once. It's impossible, right? Like when it's shining in one area, it can't shine in another area. Um, the wind rushing to fill a vacuum, uh, the wind blowing has to do with like air pressure and stuff like that. I don't know how much they understood about wind back then, but this is my, my analogy here is that like, you know, the, um, the, I once saw a video of a little kid trying to pick up ice and put it in a bucket. So the kid would pick up ice and like lean over to pick up more ice and, the, oh, no, sorry. I'm, I'm getting this mixed up with a different thing. You know what? I'm botching this idea. I haven't taught this in a very long time. Hold on. If I can't remember it in a second, then I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump ship. Um, hold on a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on the idea. Well, that, that was a misfire. <laughs> the point I was trying to make with the idea, though, was that the goal that both of you are aiming at in different ways is uh, futile, okay, uh, and um, Hevel. And the question is identifying what is not futile in that and what is futile, and then categorizing which type of futility are you pursuing. And one of the types of, of, of futility is that you are the cause of, of, of the inability to attain it. And the other is that it's an intrinsically uh, possible, impossible goal to attain. And, um, and what struck me is that what you were saying was like, it's an intrinsically impossible goal to attain, which is to like, you know, uh, uh, you know, defeat antisemitism or like get Israel's reputation up. And then, and then your situation seemed to be much more that like, it's possible that you're thwarting your own efforts. Um, I forgot exactly how this fits into these took but sorry about that. Okay, uh, that was a good Q&A. Thanks for, uh, for coming. Yeah. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewos at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.